Having a great deal of. Uh, oh, I, I love it because I printed it out. Well, the other thing is that the other thing is that the first few verses were particularly pregnant yeah. with with yes, illusion. So, yeah. so. But going forward, don't give up. I will give up. All right, I'm in some trouble here. Ten seconds to law again with my illusions. For some reason, my profile got. such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Morning to all. How's everyone doing? Online, Mimi, Rhonda, Elizabeth, Ed. Do you have any hidden people? Let's see. Because if you don't turn your camera, we can't see you, but I can figure out. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's, uh, everyone's being known out there. So, Well, we, we as I was mentioning a, a minute ago, um, the first few verses of Revelation have, have um, some real uh, pregnant images that we've spent a couple weeks going through, just a couple of verses. Not every verse in all 22 chapters has the same depth of Old Testament illusion, although it's all deeply rooted in, in that, that sort of Old Covenant uh, frame of reference. Um, and so just to kind of review to get us where we, where we are, um, last week we mentioned that you know, Jesus Christ, the, the faithful witness, the one who gives who's sent by God to tell us who he is in a faithful way. Uh, he's the firstborn, which carries all that Old Testament imagery, how the firstborn saved Israel from Egypt. 
uh, the firstborn inherits the estate, um, and 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 so Jesus is fulfilling all that. And he also calls uh, more more significantly for our purposes, uh, Jesus the firstborn from the dead, so that. Um, uh, which means that uh, he is he is the first to be uh, okay. That's good. This this actually happened. Something I set in the tables last night. I said we've never had more so far than twelve around the table. So now we're we're growing to the point where I need thirteen seats. So now we're just going to well, fun. Carol, Carol, they'll, they'll let you in there. Come on, come up and join us at the table. Little, you know, um, so, um, so, so my point is when, when Revelation says the firstborn, it's meaning to, to, to bring out all these biblical images and present Jesus as the fulfillment of all that, of all that the firstborn means in the Old Testament. And then the firstborn from the dead is that's, that's the, the really significant thing because. That's the stuckness of humanity under the old covenant, is that there was no answer to death. <clears throat> you could live in communion with God, then you died. And this is, is very important to understand that, um, that in the Jewish hope, there's no, there's no real desire simply to die and go to heaven. For the Jewish Old Testament Jewish show life was life in a body in in the place that God had promised land blessing body so the the fact of death marked the end of the ability to fulfill the promise of the old covenant because you lost land you lost you you however you were, and euphemisms in the Old Testament for this space are, you know, uh, resting with the fathers or and the place where, where it is called Sheol. But Sheol is, is a place that's unfulfilling. It's not completed. Um, and so we begin to get allusions to the completion of it with resurrection imagery about the about those who were stuck in Sheol rising. Um, Daniel mentions this at the end of his book, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall rise. Uh, the most uh, and Daniel's a, a post-exilic prophet. This is an end of the Old Testament kind of thing that comes to pass. The most famous verse is Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones where the word of God, the, the spirit of God moves and he speaks and the bones come to life. And uh, uh, oh, uh, we, we sit there, we just pull up a chair here in the corner here. Yeah, I was just mentioning to Rob who came, this is the first time we've had more than 12. So now, I'm, now I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand, gonna add a table, gonna add a table. I knew that, uh, something said to me last night because I pulled the tables right after the class I had that you're doing 12. You might have more, and I should have. I should have listened. I should have listened to the voice uh, of the Holy Spirit saying, "You know, have more." But uh, so, but we, or it might just have to be cozier. Like it's not like we can't fit. I think we're in, in the post-COVID. We could, you know, a little closer, like that personal space. Like 
like the midweek mass in church where everyone sits the maximum distance from everyone else. <laughs> so, but um, so death and, and so um, the resurrection. This is this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so very important. Not just oh, there's life after death, but there's an answer to the to the stuckness of the soul being shale and the body being in the ground. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one who um, whose soul went to shale. He descended into hell. That's the Apostles' Creed. Hell is Hades, which is the Greek translation of Sheol. He descended into Sheol. He went where his part. He went to his part to go, and and he went and he was buried. That's the state of stuckness in the old covenant. He is the firstborn because the third day he rose again, which means his soul returned from Sheol. His body was raised, and he has new life in a body. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that's the promise of the Christian faith. We believe in the, Nicene Creed says, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. We don't believe in dying and going to heaven and living forever in a disembodied state. We believe that the state of being with Christ or asleep or in paradise, however you conceive of it in, in the post-mortem Christian existence is intermediate and not fulfilled. And, and it looks for this final hope, uh, which the New Testament puts, puts, um, proclaims in a few places uh, in Thessalonians, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first. First Corinthians chapter 15, um, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. But the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, and then there's uh, a passage in Philippians. Um, uh, we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be like his glorious body. So this is the hope. And it, it really, I think, is, is a problem in our culture when we've flattened out the Christian hope to the idea of die and go to heaven. Because, and why is that a problem? Uh, first of all, it's, it's not particularly biblical um, that, that that's all there is. Second, it, it doesn't... Um, It disjoints the, the, the end of the Christian life from the state of God's creation. And, um, and it's not something, so the, it, I think it leads to a lack of longing. And this is why I like the images of, of heaven, you know, which are not biblical in any event, but they tend to be, you know, on a cloud, playing a harp, not doing much. You know, it's like... And so all the things you like to do in life, you don't get to do. You get to be there, and I can't wait to get there, you know, kind of thing. And and so I think that, but if I, we're, you know, we're, we, we can say that, but if you be honest, like people, you, I, how many times have seen a funeral, oh, they're in a better place. It's like, you don't believe that, really. I mean, you might believe that theologically, 
But the way you can conceive of it is, you know, you wish they were still here. And in a certain sense, which we do long for that connection, that embodied connection. But only the hope of resurrection answers the human hope in a compelling way. That God who made the world in the beginning and it was good, sin entered in and disordered the creation and brought corruption in. Our Lord came to live and die for sin and rise from the dead to restore humanity and then the whole creation to harmony with God. And now at the end of their creative work at what we call the second coming or the appearance of Christ, he will complete that work. And we will be embodied, however glorious that thing is, in a creation. St. Paul mentions this in Romans 8, where he says the whole creation groans and travails in labor until now. So we can long for the completion of the created world. We can long for the end of the endless cycles of birth and death that characterize nature. We can long for being together in a place where no one's going to die and there are going to be more funerals. And so that's the kind of thing, yeah, I want Christ to come and do that. So when the New Testament said, come Lord Jesus, that's what they meant. We can long for a world where the Lord is really Lord and there's not a Ukraine. We can long, and so that's, and as long as, and this is where you get in touch with the disorder of the world we live in, is that it reminds us that this is not it. And part of the problem of our prosperity in the West is we can shield ourselves from that pain and think, oh, well, if everyone just had this, we just make the world perfect. The world is not perfectible apart from Jesus being its Lord. We're supposed to bear witness to Christ in it. We want to work to make things better for people and all that kind of good stuff. But it's not, that's not the hope. And we begin to connect it with the resurrection. And that's the restoration of the whole created order of harmony with God. Then we can say, I come, Lord Jesus. We can also say that when our knees get weaker and our body, it's like, you know, you get a knee replacement. But that's like a like a whole new thing. It's going to last forever. So that's that's not that's not. Um, so um, that's why the firstborn from the dead, he opened that horizon. He's the pioneer who went there. And since we are baptized into him and our lives are following the trajectory of his life, that's that's our hope that the same thing that happened to him will happen to us, the firstborn from the dead. The other thing we touched on, he's ruler over the kings of the earth. And Revelation and the Bible proclaims this truth that Jesus is Lord. He's not the person Christians worship where the Muslims have Allah and the Buddhists have Buddha. No, he's Lord of everything. And he will judge it all. And, and, and that proclamation has also been softened among Christians. Oh, you know, we're all going to get along. And, and, and uh, uh, that is the witness. And it's, it's never popular, which is why we're always tempted to soften it. It doesn't mean that in proclaiming that we, we're rude and nasty and overbearing, that we don't respect the background beliefs of other people 
it does mean that we can't settle for, uh, you know, oh, everyone's religion is about the same. It's not. Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Um, and we talked a lot about he made us kings and priests, fulfilling the vocation we mentioned in Exodus, where he, where, where Moses, God through Moses promised to Israel be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what Revelation is showing is the fulfillment of that promise, that we all now, whereas in the, in the Old Testament, only kings and priests and some prophets got the Holy Spirit. Now, where all of us get the Holy Spirit, we're all participating in this rule and kingship. And that's, that's, we already enjoy that. We're going to see that as it plays out. So it's fulfilling. And this is a very important thing that Jesus is fulfilling here. It, the revelation is showing us that Jesus fulfills all of these old covenant things. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And then uh, we talked about, behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And that coming with clouds being Daniel 7. He's coming with clouds because he's coming in judgment. What is he coming in judgment on? He's coming in judgment, and this is the narrative twist of Revelation. He's coming in judgment, unfortunately, on his unfaithful chosen people. Who, to whom he came and who rejected him. And then after a generation of church witness including more martyrs, he's coming with clouds. They judged him, and he rose, and now he's their judge. And that's clearly, Jesus himself said it, that this would happen because you didn't know the time of your visitation. And that's Luke 19. And then Matthew 23, where he says, um, all, all these things will come upon this generation, all the righteous blood, the blood of Abel to the blood. And so it's, 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 but that's, that's what I, it, and, and the narrative twist is that Israel has this hope that, and it, it's, it's embodied in the Pharisees, that um, they were looking for God to vindicate Israel and judge the nations. And the Pharisees' logic, though it was hypocritical and not carried out, was if Israel kept the Torah and was righteous, God would declare Israel to be righteous and would judge those who persecuted the nations. So in the New Testament, Jesus comes as the embodiment of Israel. The Pharisees and others reject him, but he lives the righteous life. And in the resurrection, he's declared to be the righteous one. And God judges his enemies, which unfortunately were God's old covenant chosen people in the first instance. And so that's the narrative shift we're going we're gonna to get. Uh, and, and God's old covenant people are going to be the unfaithful woman that's going to purpose and revelation that sits on the back of the beast, which is clearly Rome. And it's the compromise with this that we see. We're going to see it begin the Holy Week. Where's the compromise? What, what results in the crucifixion? A conspiracy, a joint deal between the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities end up in this 
And so that's, that's how this, this plays itself out. So um, he's coming with clouds. The Daniel figure, he ascended. We talked about Daniel 7, 13, 14, uh, where the, so one like the Son of Man comes to the clouds of heaven, receives glory and honor and dominion and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. So when he's coming with clouds, it's the image he's coming in judgment. He's coming as this one now who rules over everything. And that's what this means. Um, it clearly has a horizon of the end of the world. I mean, the second coming, because he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so the kind of judgment that took place locally in Jerusalem in AD 70 by just parallel development of the themes of the scriptures will end up being a global reality as the gospel is proclaimed. And, and, and just as in AD 70, what happened is those who believed in Jesus in Jerusalem were warned by prophets to flee and they fled the city before the Romans came. So God's people were saved from the judgment that came on Jerusalem. So somehow in the end of time, that will play itself out in real or symbolic ways. But that's the idea of coming with clouds. So I want to, I want to um, uh, and so that gets us kind of into, into the beginning of, um, got this new watch. I keep putting it on upside down because the numbers, so they got this already. <laughs> I thought it was so late the other day. It's like, oh no, it's like, no. <laughs> um, so, this is the context, and, and maybe a little bit of an introduction here to another topic, uh, just that, that is the backdrop that some know about, some don't know about. But one of the, the, the reasons that it's important to get one's head straight on about Revelation is that a lot of what's happened over the last, um, I'd say we're about 150 years now, because the Adventist movements began um, in the late 1800s. Uh, those were, the, there was a group called the Millerites that said Jesus is coming right away, and that kind of morphed into being the Seventh-day Adventists. And, um, and that became then the, the sort of Adventist things that became um, what, what is known as the doctrine of dispensationalism, which if you've ever caught yourself listening to prophecy radio, that's what you hear. And it's, it always takes the images of Revelation and, and tries to apply them to some contemporary thing to say that this is what Revelation is talking about and Jesus coming soon. And um, I, I was exposed to this in when I first came out of college and was sort of fresh off being converted back to faith. I used to go to a, a Christian uh, businessman's breakfast group with my dad. It was by an Armenian guy started it. And this was the late... Um, 19, well, mid-1980s, it wasn't late 1980s, early 1980s, actually, and and like the guys, I'm not, I'm not I, they were uh, mostly Baptist guys, they were, you know, they were serious about their faith, and they, you know, there was a, a, a concern for faith in Jesus, but there was a background in sensationalism, and, and with all the stuff going on in the 80s, you know, uh, 
any era, you yeah. do, you, back there, you can just come at all the symbols. Oh, this, you know, let's say Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666, one guy would say, you know, you know just like, and then there's the, you know, there, there are all sorts of things going on that, uh, and a number of things, so I'm, I'm like, New to it, so I was like, "Oh gosh, he's coming soon. I better, you know." But a, a couple things always bothered me about it. Um, and before I discovered, before it, it proved to be false to me, in it uh, was one was something bothered me because everyone said he was coming soon, but nobody seemed very happy about it. <laughs> you know, in the New Testament, it's like Maranatha, come Lord, and he's like, "Oh, he's coming," but. You know, we're kind of hoping that I get to carry on for a while before he really does the, you know, the march to the sea and 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 levels everything. So no one's very happy about it. Um, and the other thing that 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 came up is I just began to see it it, it, it proved false. Like there was a great book and a great book. There's a book in the 70s by a guy named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth with one of the most popular renditions of dispensationalism. And he had all sorts of things like the 10-nation European common market was the beast. And then I'm watching the news and like an 11th member joined the union. It's like, oh, okay. So that didn't quite work exactly like you're saying. And then I remember one of the guys that Good man, the Christian businessman said, yeah, he was, he was about circa 1985. He was certain we were in the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Like, okay, well, sorry, but but then, you know, uh, was that 80, I remember it was 84. So, uh, but then 1991 and two came. It's like, he, I went right. And virtually many aspects of Hal Lindsey's book were just false. And nobody dragged him out and stoned him as a false prophet. But a lot of people lost their faith because they thought this guy was telling the truth and they go all into it and they find out he's lying and it, what he's saying is very aberrant in the history of the church and like, oh. But what happens is, so he never gets about him, but the new guy writes the new book and he, they just repurpose the symbols for whatever happens to be going on and, and everyone thinks, says this is the end and it's, it's, it's you know, this, this idea of the end is near, it's, it's always plagued Christian history, the first millennium, rather we were 1,000, it was certainly was at the end, just like the, you had the millennial stuff around the year 2000, but it just misses the point of revelation. Um, it misses the symbolic narrative of it, and it gets you all fired up with an energy you can't sustain, and it's really damaging when people are, are made to believe that Jesus is coming in some short-term right now and it doesn't happen, then you just, oh, well, this, this isn't even true. It's missing the point of the Christian life, which is that the real call of faith is for you to become a disciple, to pick up your cross through your life or prayer, to be continually changing the image of Jesus, who is coming. And he comes to us at the altar, we meet him there, and that's the anticipation of the end of time he's going to come. But whether he comes in our life or not, that's always our longing for the completion of that, for us to become whom we are, uh, we, we were declared to be in baptism, who are becoming in the life of prayer, who we will be finally in the resurrection. And that's a hope that sustains itself forever. We live in that hope. 
and that tension between the ways in which Jesus is with us now through the Spirit and the ways in which he's coming again. We don't have all, the way in which we have the Spirit and the way in which we don't fully have all that that will mean for us. And so that perspective informs Revelation. And um, so that's the backdrop. So if you, if you, you know, I just think if you're listening to something called Bible Prophecy Radio, my best advice is just turn it off. And, and focus more on, like, what's God calling you to do today in your life? What's, what's your vocation? Because that fear gets you up here. And it, 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 then it gets people not thinking about who they're supposed to, what are they supposed to do tomorrow? That's really what this, you know, who then is that wise and faithful servant whom the Lord will find so doing when he comes? Ordinary faithfulness in every parable of our Lord about the end of times was what he says will serve you well. The wise virgins, the foolish virgins, they trimmed their lamps. They did the ordinary things every day. Prayer, love God, serve well. And 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 so that that's the thing that that's, that this sort of stands over against. Thoughts after we jump into today's stuff. I thought it was good to go over it because it just so the framework here then as we go into today's um, lesson is that. Um, we have to understand the whole image that we're going to be brought into, and it's all the image of the temple, the Old Testament temple. Um, the seven lampstands are the lampstands that sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Uh, and so what we're going to get here in Revelation is a clearer picture. And, no, and one other piece of information is, and then... What what Israel believed about the temple, which was actually um, common in the ancient pagan world, even that the earthly temple was a mirror image or copy of the heavenly one, so that so that it wasn't it wasn't that literally God just was contained and lived in the temple that he was he was limited by that, but that this was a sign so that as we interacted with God in the temple in the way he told us to this through this sacramental sign as it were we entered into the reality of the thing it pointed to and that still is the theology that informs our worship that in, 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 in signs and symbols and actions that, that present reality, by entering into them, we enter into the reality they point to. And so what Revelation is going to show us is the heavenly temple itself, the fulfillment of the earthly one, which is about ready to go away. And that's, that's I think, significant for the point of Revelation, that the end point of Revelation is the destruction of the earthly temple. You know, the, the, the old covenant is over, is what is what is to say. And therefore, the, the things pertaining to it, including the temple and its sacrifices, will soon be gone. But here's the true temple in heaven. And this is where we will see the church dwells. Kings and priests. We'll get to chapter uh, 4 or 5, 24 elders. 
Therefore, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven lift up your hearts. We live in the reality of this presence because we are in Christ. And if Christ is there, then we're there also. So, good luck on that some. So, we start at, at, verse, at, at uh, verse 9. So, I, John, both your brother and companion... And these words are important, so we'll talk about them a little bit. In the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. On the islands called Paphos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Got the audible version of that going, yeah. So, um, tribulation. Um, one of the um, the things that was central to this dispensationalist outlook was the idea that the church would escape the tribulation and that the real you know suffering would fall on you know the, all the people who didn't believe. Um, but the New Testament is clear from beginning to end that um, that the tribulation that 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 the church and, and believers will suffer tribulation, and so he's your our companion. We're sharing together in the tribulation, and the tribulation, of course, of the first century was being a Christian minority in a world that had uh, uh, was mostly pagan. And, and also in cities in Asia Minor where there were synagogues who opposed you. So you're suffering because nobody wants you there. Um, and this follows on the life of Jesus who suffered because they didn't, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. And this is, this is actually a timeless scriptural thing. Why did Cain kill Abel because he didn't want to put up with what Abel represented, which was having done the right thing. So those who do the wrong, those who refuse to hear the voice of God, don't want to hear those who who have that to say. So this resulted in the crucifixion and the church as the as the body of Christ that continues on in that witness is going to participate in that. And that's something that we in our culture are going to have to be more and more comfortable with because we're shifting from a time when um, what we believed in was accepted and comfortable in our culture <clears throat> into a time when it's not anymore. And we're not going to do away with it by having political campaigns to change laws. It's not, we're going to state, we have to, like the early church, have to bear witness to something different. Not angrily, not, but, but firmly as witnesses for the truth, this is, this is, and we're going to, and for that, there's a tribulation. There's a sense of alienation from the world. And in a certain way, that sense of alienation from the world is badly needed by Western Christians because nothing actually saps the hope that Jesus will come more than uh, ease and prosperity. If you want to think through the years, why did the early church really long for Jesus to come? Because they were suffering. Lord, come vindicate me. But when things are nice, it's like, 
hey, Lord, you know, could you hold off a little while? I, I got a little, you know, and um, so it's not that we, you know, we can be grateful for what we have, but this is where the things that are difficult and sad about life are supposed to teach us not to get attached to it, that this is not the final place. And that's a hard lesson sometimes, because we hold on to it. We try to hold on to our youth. We don't want to age gracefully. It's like, I know. Yeah, we're all going to You know, so I, I, I think about that now that I'm, you know, as you go along, I've, throughout my ministry, it's like I people talk to me, you know, I go see people. It's like, oh, yeah, can't do this anymore, can't do it anymore. And I was just, I mean, I was sympathetic because I, I my own thing, too. But on one hand, I would say, did you think you were the only one who was never going to, I mean, did you think the process was not going to, I didn't, you know, it's like, it's going to happen to all of us, and we hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll hold off as long as possible, we'll be able to do as much as possible for as long as possible, but it's impossible to hold it off forever. We're all going to die if our Lord doesn't come first, and the process of that is a grace that's meant to detach us from the world. And, 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 and turn to God in faith. And so are the tribulations of life are meant to make us remember that this is not it. And that the temptations of the comforts of the world are to fool us into thinking this is it. We hear here and we, and we, you know, and that's the whole story of Israel, that when they went to the promised land, they, you know, they, they said is uh, that my own hand, the strength of my arm has gotten me this wealth. And so, Tribulation. So that's part of it. The, the tribulation, um, the church did participate, and there's a thing called the Great Tribulation, and often that's thought of as some future thing. But the Great Tribulation is um, <clears throat> happened in the first century, and is the cosmic shift in power that resulted because Jesus is now Lord. And we'll see it later on in Revelation where um, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Dragon and his angels fought. And the note wasn't any place for him in heaven anymore. This is the result of the Great Tribulation, a power shift. Jesus is now Lord. The new man has undone what Adam did and has restored rule and dominion. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so it, and on, in time, there's tribulation. But so companion tribulation and kingdom. There's tribulation, but we're in the kingdom of God. And so our tribulation has the same effect as Jesus' own suffering. As we endure through it faithfully, it's going to lead to resurrection. Or following the pattern of his life. So John's our, our brother and the companion, companion the tribulation, the kingdom of God. We gather around the altar and we participate in the Eucharist. We're, we enter into the kingdom. We, we affirm this life and we pray. We affirm this life that we're in and, um, and enables us to endure faithfully and bear witness faithfully in the world. And then the patience, which is uh, perseverance. Perseverance is continuing on faithfully. It's not 
just sitting still. In patients, we think I have to sit here. But the word here is more like perseverance. And, and this, is, this is why um, it's helpful to have disciplines of faith because there are things you can continue on in when you're tired. It's like when you go to the, you want to get in shape, you can just go to the gym when you're feeling good and just randomly do exercises. When I don't want to work out today, you helps to have a, okay, I do four of these. And, you know, so this is when we talk about a rule of life or prayer. It's the way we sustain ourselves. We continue on when we're tired. Because um, always the test of faith is when we get tired. There are always energized times of faith where it feels great and God's here. And, and one of the destructive things about cultural faith is the implication that when those uh, euphoric times vanish, there's something wrong with your faith. But throughout the spiritual tradition, uh, it is taught that actually the dryness is where the real spiritual growth takes place. That's where the purging of the disordered desire really takes place. It is dry, the, the, the consolation is taken away, we're called to trust on God, and that work takes place in, in earnest. And so it's actually the wilderness, like Lent, is actually the place where God is most fully present uh, because he only is fully present, well, he tends to be more fully present when the things that comfort us otherwise are taken away. We have to persevere, you know, in in the kingdom and the practice of the kingdom through those things. And if we do, and this is the good news, if that sounds, is that God's with us. All we have to do is continue on. Doesn't mean perfectly. You know, stumble, get back up, get on horse, go on. That's the only thing that can keep us from from um, our destiny of resurrection is giving up. And that's why that's the chief demonic temptation. It's not to get you to sin. It's having gotten you to sin, then to shove you into despair. And and so the perseverance in the kingdom, continuing on in, in practices through whatever comes our way. Because we're already the we're already in the kingdom. We don't want to forfeit that spot. Tribulation, kingdom of God, perseverance. And he was on the island, it's called Patmos, for the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now Cheryl's been to Patmos a number of times. Like what do you want to tell us? What do you want to tell us about, about Patmos? Oh, a lot of people say it's like heaven on earth, and you feel like either you want to stay on the island or you want to get off. But um, I remember going in the cave, because the cave is still here, there, and there's like there's like a thing, this the hole in the cave this far up off the ground. And I heard that one of the guides come in and say that's where John would hold on so he wouldn't levitate to the ceiling. <laughs> you know? But um, it really is beautiful. And like when you surrender there, it's like I just had my intuition said, go up. It was our last day of my class. I went for seven days each time. And I went. And it was St. John's Day. And so they were ringing the bells and having church service and doing communion the Orthodox Church in the cave on St. John's Day. Twice this happened to me. Yeah, and I didn't know it was St. John's Day. 
I just was there and everything. Which month is that? Huh? Which month? I don't remember because I've gone different well, times. Well, St. John is, is uh, two days, well, Orthodox may have a different day. For us, yeah. it's two days after Christmas, the 27th of, of December. But, but the only thing I would do, yes. the only thing I would say, and I, I, I think it's right to go to um, holy spots and celebrate, but I, and I, with all due respect to the levitating tradition, I think John was suffering in that cave. Yeah. I think he was he was persevering in something, and I think God visits. Obviously, he has this vision in that cave. It's but, a really beautiful island. Yeah, and I so. Really huh? Well, anyways. And it's Ephesus is right across. You can yeah, see Ephesus yeah. across from it, where Mary's house was. I didn't believe you. Yeah. I don't believe it, but I mean. Don't believe what? They, had, they that, found that relics. Awesome, that that's where Mary and John They lived. found old relics all over well, the Well, here, here's, here's what it is. Here's what it is. As, as, you, as you're talking about that, it reminds me of going to the Holy Land. Is whether it is the cave, you, 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 it's like, whether is this the Mount of the Beatitudes? But it, it, here's where he was. It was probably like that. You know, it, it's all that it's type very of stuff. Small yeah. So, anyway, so. He, he's, he, he, there's an exile on the island for the purpose of, of his testimony. And this is where he gets the vision, which also is interesting, right? So that if we talk about places of suffering and solitude being places of revelation, John in his exile, that's where he gets the vision. And we're most disconnected. Obviously, we're in the in the place that's most conducive to it. Now, verse ten. Then it says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day," and we need to to pay attention to some of that language uh, in the spirit about what that means. Because I think it can mean we we can take it to mean. Um, having this uh, transcended spiritual experience, but it really is language pertains to the prophets. Ezekiel says in chapter 2, the Spirit of the Lord entered me. And if you read Ezekiel, which we are uh, also read, read some of uh, during Epiphany, and, and is that um, the Spirit had Ezekiel do some very painful things. So, being led by the Spirit isn't always just, it, it can also, and remember that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, being in the Spirit does not preclude the suffering. What being in the Spirit means is that you have this presence with you that will enable you to continue through it and to, to discover God's will in it. And even as John is to have the inspiration that comes from God in it. Now the Lord's Day is really important. Um, so let's let's um, let's talk about that. What's the Lord's Day? Sunday. And um, from the beginning, the early church gathered for worship on Sunday to celebrate the Eucharist. 
because it was always seen as the day that the church um, encountered the risen Lord again. That that um, that as the church came and did what Jesus said to do, which came to mean making an offering of you know, their offerings of various things used to be fruits and vegetables. We give money, but also offering bread and wine. Having that that uh, blessed and prayed for and then participating in it uh, was after the model of uh, the road to Emmaus experience where they entered the home and he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it. And, and they knew him. The early church understood that this was how the church now encountered the risen Christ now. And the Lord's Day was the day of resurrection, the day in which the church perpetually experienced this again and again. So the fact that John is encountering the not just the risen, but the ascended and glorified Christ on this is, is, is not foreign to the church's experience. And a lot of the language, there's really a, a reality here in Revelation in which this whole thing is um, portrayed as, as a liturgy of worship. Because we're going to get, um, just looking at a big overview of this, we're going to get, um, send these letters to the churches. Just say that. And then in 2 and 3, it's going to be the word of God to the churches the liturgy of the word. And then there's going to be a shift in chapter 4. Um, John's going to see a door and uh, hear a voice speaking. It's going to say, come up here. The shift in liturgy, lift up your hearts, which is ancient, the Sursum Corda. Every ancient liturgy says that. The church then hears the word, liturgy of the word, and, and comes up into the reality of heaven through the Eucharistic mysteries. And all and, and then what he sees up there is what the church's experience of worship is, is, is being in this presence. And what Revelation is showing us is though we we can't physically see it, this is the mystery of work. It's revealing what the mystery we're participating in when we're when we're participating in this thing. This whole thing is a framework of that. And then it also shows then that as the church enters up and offers prayers to God, all the judgments that come, come in response to those prayers. So how does how do we as kings and priests exercise our priesthood and rule with Christ? We do it through our prayers, the way we... we we, 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 bring, we um, offer our prayers to God and commit ourselves to him in the way we're then witnesses to him in the world. We participate in the rule. And God, our prayers are powerful ways in which we, we, we rule with him as we rule. So the Lord's Day, Sunday day of worship and gathering to meet the risen Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. <clears throat> now, the trumpet here is going to be, is, is pretty common in the, in the Old Testament. It's the shofar, and that's what it means. It doesn't mean like the three-fingered 
thing that we have. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's a heraldic thing. Uh, you blow the trumpet. Uh, that was the um, beginning of the year for uh, Rosh Hashanah. You, you blew the trumpet to announce the new year. Um, there, there are various ways you blew it to announce things. Um, and you announced the, you know, the coming of, of God. When Joshua uh, marched around Jericho seven times and they blew trumpets, what we're saying is God's, you know, God's coming. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think the you know, people in Jericho were sufficiently afraid. Um, so here, he heard a, a voice of the trumpet announcing, and then there's the revelation. Loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The one who is in the beginning with the Father, and the one who is the heir of everything at the end. The firstborn who inherits everything. And our worship symbolizes this because we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. But as we go through the week, through seven, it also serves in the Jewish theology as the eighth day, the completion. So he is the first and the eighth. And, and so, um, and, and so we, we're always in the Christian experience of time, beginning time in Christ and ending time in Christ, which is a new beginning. And at some point in time, he will finally appear in, in that and fulfill time in that way. And the end in the year works the same way. We begin the year in Advent, waiting for him to become work our way through the year, and we come back to Advent, Advent always has that dual theme, is coming at the end of time, is coming again, if we go back to the year, but it's not merely a circle, time works in a progressive circle that has a talents, an end. It's not like um, some sort of Eastern religion where time is seen as a mere forever in a circle stuff, you know, it's it's a progressive cycle that has a telos. And every time through the cycle we come to the, to the end of it, we're a little closer to the real end, and we begin again. And that's where our lives in Christ work. We, we work in the cycle like we just came to Lent this year. <clears throat> it's not just, oh, Lent again. No, we're at a different place in Lent. We've grown some. Or we're, we're progressing in faith towards the telos. And that's our, that's that's the Christian experience of time, and it's why it's very important, if we're serious about our faith, to orient our lives around this idea of time. It begins on Sunday in Christ. We go into the week as witnesses. We come back to Christ, and we're not we're not simply in the uh, spring season. This you know that, that's going to lead to the next sale. We're in Lent, preparing for Easter and the resurrection, and when. Our time and our prayers informed by these themes. We that's how we live in the kingdom. That's the time of the kingdom, the time in which, and that's it's that very nature of living in time that fills us with hope, because um, then time always has this characteristic of um, that, that that is coming up here of 
of past, present, and future. We live in prayer like we come on Sunday to the Eucharist, which epitomizes all of prayer. We're remembering what God has done, the past. We're experiencing it in a new way right now, and we're anticipating the completion. And that fills us with hope. When we get away from that experience of time, we're just stuck in temporal time, where everything we do is going to end and every project will eventually fail. There's no higher redemptive meaning to it. Only as we bring the world into the kingdom and experience the world in the light of the kingdom can we experience that dynamic where even worldly and temporal failure or tribulation is something God works in to further us in the kingdom. And that's why the life of prayer is so central. If we don't stay in that, we, we, we're going to we're going to digress into the um, time of the world. So on the first and last, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia: to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, they're just, they're just seven churches. I have a tiny little map I printed out, but they're just, these are, are what is modern Turkey on the coast. They're just a sort of cycle of churches, and Patmos is just off the coast. And the importance of these, though, and the purpose of John is they're specific historical churches with specific things to be said to them. But the number seven, which is throughout John's literature in the Gospels, Seven I am statements. We we mentioned Revelation has seven blessed statements, um, and and seven days of the creation makes the completeness. So they're also going to be symbolic of God's message to the whole church. And as we read through them, the the task of hearing Revelation for us now is okay. We can see in these churches the kinds of strengths and weaknesses. They characterize all churches at all times, and we have to think of where are we in this? What 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 needs to be said to us? And how do we need to hear this message, this to these churches, but is also to the whole church for all time being seven? So that's that's I think the significance of that. And what you see right in the book is going to get a vision here, and we mentioned back in first in verse one that um, God the Father gives the revelation to Jesus who's going to signify it to John, by his angel to John, who's going to write it down. <clears throat> so the, these symbols are, gonna, are going to be revelatory. And there's always this pattern in symbols like there is in parables that they both conceal and reveal. That's why Jesus told parables. If you actually look at why Jesus told parables, why he said he told parables in Matthew chapter 12, it wasn't to tell people understand stories. <clears throat> it was because he said, quote, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing may not understand. 
<clears throat> and to understand, then, for you have to look at the symbols in the story and be willing with faith to, to dig into and pray for understanding so you can see. If you look at it merely as a farming story, you're not going to get it. If you look at these symbols in Revelation, what that's this weird looking woman, or a creature with eyes everywhere, that's scary. Ah. Well, you have to look at it with the eyes of faith in the spirit to begin to see, okay, what's he saying here? And the way we understand it is to look at the symbols. Where does this come from in the Bible? What's it mean there? Okay, how's it being moved forward now in the light of the revelation of Jesus? And how do we understand it? That's the, that's the exercise we have to engage in to understand what's being said. I think that might all be about what we have for today. Otherwise, if we go further, we're going to dive, dive into. So now we, you know, we have three verses today. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, so when we get to verse 12 and on here, just be aware that um, the, the lampstands here are the temple lampstands. And he's going to see... Uh, um, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So the image here is, this is the Holy of Holies, not the one in Jerusalem, the one in heaven. And Jesus is in the midst of it, which is what? He is the presence of God. That's the implicit lesson here. He is the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But also another thing that's going to happen here is, when he decides what these are, we'll talk about more next week, what are the lampstands that the churches? Where the church is located, where they're in the Holy of Holies. They are the place now where God dwells. And so the shifting of imagery helps us understand what's being said. We have to, but we have to work with images in their own terms and, and, and figure it out that way. And the image, the temple images back in Exodus, I, you know, I can, it, it the build, it's very elaborate descriptions in Exodus, which somehow can be a little hard to follow, but we can we can look at them in, in sort of summary detail. Yeah. Is there any any merit of you that the seven churches kind of is brought or to that? Um, I hadn't I hadn't heard that one, but so I I, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's. Um, <laughs> I've seen a lot of things. I wouldn't say it's not that. I've seen some people do some things with the uh, arranging of the tribes and how they were camped in Israel, making shapes out of it and something like that. I mean, I just, I just, the, the more speculative, the more, the more you approach it with some caution. You know, but it could be fun. So, all right, let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord make His face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to have you all here. Thanks for patience working through this. Or did you say it? I missed it. He's like, he's saying that. Um,
He's these churches, God is participating with them in these things, which means they are also participating in these things. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be in tribulation, to be in the kingdom, and, and to persevere in that so as to achieve the things you want to get. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Are you doing? Show me what you want me to do. I've been trying to live according to these during Lent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I think that's. I think. Well, that's. I think a lot more about that. We should just talk about. I think that is. I eat a meal every day for all my meals. You know what I mean? But it's like, uh, why don't I do that? Do that for a while. Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it for a head. Yeah. Yeah.